Warning, Tongue and Geek contains heavy spoilers. If you haven't read, watched, or played the content being reviewed this episode, know that we will definitely spoil major plot points. Also, this show isn't for kids. We use words like and and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out. Please don't tell our moms. lovely listeners, and welcome to Tongue and Geek, where two more white guys on the internet give their unsolicited opinions on all things geeky. I'm Isaac. I'm Tyler. And today we're reviewing a couple of Hulk's most iconic stories. The first is Future Imperfect, a two-issue miniseries published in 1992 and 1993, written by Peter David and art by George Perez. The second is Hulk the Inn, also known as The Last Titan, which is a non-canon one-shot published in 2002 and written by Peter David again, and penciled by Dale Keown and inked by Joe Weems. Tyler, you mind if I take over the background here since this is like my favorite superhero and everything? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I just have one little bit of trivia that you probably already know. Yeah. That, um, I didn't know that the end was actually an adaption, adaptation of a prose story that yes. Peter David wrote. Yeah, it was in I a, that was cool. Yeah, it is really cool. It was in a collection of Hulk stories that were like published in, I want to say, I have it written down somewhere here. The Not, Ultimate Hulk. Yeah. It's called The Ultimate Hulk. Yeah. Uh, 1998 is when that was released. There was a collection gonna, of short stories. Since I have a weird soft spot for superhero stories in prose, I'll have to keep a lookout for that book and oh yeah, story. definitely going to buy that somewhere. So I'm going to start with a bit of my personal background. Since the Hulk is my favorite comic book character, um, I've loved him for years. I I literally couldn't tell you when I started loving the Hulk. I can't even really tell you what the first piece of Hulk media that I consumed was. Uh, I can tell you some of the earliest, but not which one is the earliest. You know, I could get into, like, a whole spiel about, like, why that might have been. I had a lot of anger issues as a kid, and Hulk served as both as, like, a power fantasy and also sort of a cautionary tale regarding my anger. Um, but really, I just want to talk about some of, like, the early Hulk things that I grew up loving. The earliest ones, maybe, that I can think of were the big essential Marvel collections, which, if you don't know, is like this great big mm. omnibus of some of the earliest comics in Marvel's history from like the 60s and so on, reprinted in these big, big, thick paperback books that were uh, in black and white instead of the original color. Uh, yeah, because, basically newsprint. <laughs> yeah, it, ma- it made them cheaper to publish and to sell like that. Uh, I had a bunch of those for a bunch of different Marvel properties. I think I had a Spider-Man one. I had an X-Men one, not of the original X... Or no, it was the original X-Men run. And also, like, the later one when they introduced Wolverine and Colossus and them, too. Uh, but I had, like, two or three of the Hulk. So I remember reading a bunch of, like, the original Hulk comics from, like, the 60s and early 70s. So those are maybe the earliest ones I can think of that I had... Uh, reading Hulk media, but also there was the 1996 Hulk cartoon. Whoop, whoop. I had a couple VHS tapes of it. 
and I never watched it all the way through. I sh- that might be a pod down the line to go back and revisit that cartoon. Hell yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, I remember the theme song. Yeah, it was literally Hulk. just them going Hulk over and over again, and just like dramatic music overlaid. I watched like the v- the first VHS tape of that cartoon basically every day when I was in like my early preteens and everything. Oh, little fanboy Isaac sounds cute. Mm-hmm. Also, the Hulk 2003 film, which we're definitely going to do a pod on. Uh, I loved that as a kid. Uh, I have different opinions on it now that Tyler fights me about, which we'll get to. We'll it get is to a misunderstood masterpiece. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about it some point down the line. But when I was a kid, I loved the 2003 Hulk film. I remember actually right after I got out of the theater seeing it for the first time, I went to the mall with my dad because he was the one who took me and my brother to see it. And he bought me a great big Hulk figure that was like, at that age, it was like half the size of my body. It was a huge Hulk figure. It was like the size of one of those Megazords, like Power Ranger Megazords that stands like three or four feet tall. It was huge. So I had that for a long time as a kid. And the last piece of Hulk media that I can really remember as one of the earliest ones from my childhood was the game Hulk Ultimate Destruction, uh, which came out in 2005 which was a video game where you played as the Hulk and you basically just beat the shit out of everything. You could smash up cities. Uh, you fought off the military. You got like all the Hulk's classic powers, like his thunderclap and ground smash and everything. It's just such a fun game. I put so many hours into playing that game. And I've been a fan of the Hulk ever since. I've, I've not read every storyline of the Hulk. There's a lot of major ones that I need to go and visit. I haven't read a lot of the Professor Hulk stuff actually, which is like a big, oversight on my part i love the character he's like the themes and messages that go on with the character have lasted with me over the years and we'll get into them when we start talking about these two stories but i just think he's such a great standout in the superhero lineup because marvel in particular and i'm dc as well but for me i'm much more initiated in the marvel universe it has a lot of variety in the sort of versions of superheroes you have. You got the classic superheroes like Spider-Man and like the Avengers and everybody. But you also have heroes who don't quite fit that same gen- general mold of just people in spandex fighting crime. Like the Fantastic Four, who are like the original Marvel characters, like, they were more explorers and scientists than they were superheroes. Like, they did fight crime and save the day, but it was really more of, like, exploring all these weird dimensions and places and worlds and stuff. Same with, like, Doctor Strange. You know, he was a sorcerer who traveled between the realms and saw, like, these demonic entities and everything. It wasn't always just, like, you know, day-to-day crime fighting, like, in other superhero stories. And I think the Hulk is such a perfect example of that because he's not a superhero in the traditional sense. Like, yes, there'll be stories where he fights bad guys and he saves the day. But for the most part, it's the story of this wandering loner just trying to survive and find some semblance of happiness in a world that fears him. It's it's the story of Frankenstein's monster merged with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where a man is trapped Two souls trapped warring within one body and also a misunderstood monster. It's just such a combination of classic storytelling tropes that go so far beyond just the superhero genre. 
the Hulk is just like this. Per- There's so many story avenues you can pursue with the Hulk. Yeah, pretty good spiel. Uh, where, where do I pick up from? Um, is that the invitation for me to go over my yeah? Experience what's your what's your background with the Hulk before I get into the specifics of these stories? Believe it or not, considering I'm the horror guy, it actually took me a while to really get into the Hulk as far as um, comics were concerned. I remember watching the, the 90s animated series a lot as a kid. Love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw three runs of the 1970s Lou Ferrigno uh, show. <laughs> I, used to, I used to be a big fan of that. Little, I'm going to cut I, in real quick. You know what's hilarious uh-huh. is that I never really watched that show much. But I bought the movie ending of the show, which was the death of the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> after seeing the 2003 Hulk film, I'm like, what? No, this can't be happening. And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, this isn't the same character at all. <laughs> this doesn't look what anything like the movie. <laughs> this is just oh, yeah. a guy in green paint. I'm confused. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. But anyway, continue. Um, yeah, so I watched that show a lot, and, um, I also loved the 2003 film, um, I still love the 2003 film, but that is a conversation for another day. We'll have it. Um, I can't tell you why it took me a while to get into the comics, it just didn't work out that way at first, I guess, like, maybe, like, I wasn't in the right mood at the time, but I always just kind of put them off and put them off and put them off, Mm -hmm. and, um, as far as, like, deep diving into a source material... It didn't really start until Al Ewing's Mortal Hulk came onto the scene a couple of years ago. Yeah. And um, I had heard rumblings that, like, this book is great. It's amazing. It's one of the best books on the stands. Like, all, right, all right. All right. I'll try it. So I started reading that, and it was it is amazing. And that made me want to go back and revisit some of the um, other Hulk stories. A lot of Peter David stuff. I mean, he wrote the character for 12 years. Yeah. Um, he saved the Hulk. Hulk. Yeah, pretty much. Greg Pack with his, you know, Planet Hulk, World War Hulk. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm actually working my way through the Bill Mantlo run, which uh, he took over the book in the 80s, mm-hmm. the early 80s. And he was kind of credited as also revitalizing character before Peter David. Yeah. Um, Bill Mantlo is actually the one who introduced uh, Bruce's father as an abusive yeah. piece of shit. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, the obviously, you know, power fantasy of it and the cautionary tale of like, the anger and giving into your base emotions. Mm-hmm. That's kind of obviously what drew me to the character as a kid, you know? Oh, he like gets angry and he can kick anybody's ass and destroy things. Like, don't, don't fuck with the Hulk. Mm-hmm. But it's not through my more mature adult eyes <laughs> um, reading the Hulk now that I just truly understand how tragic the character is. Oh yeah. Like, they go some dark places, and we're going to talk about them in these stories, but they go some dark places in almost every Hulk story. People who just watch the films and see the Hulk, especially the MCU films, have no idea how crazy dark Hulk stories get, because they just see, like, big rampaging monster and, you know, kind of quiet scientist guy who is, like, kind of sad about it. It's like, no, these stories, they're dark. You know, this is not a happy tale of, you know, good triumphing over evil. This is this tale of a man tortured by the fact that he turns into a monster, and a monster tortured by the fact that he can't find a place in the world. And they hate each other. Yeah. So that's a good that's a good jumping into point to talk about Peter David, who wrote both of these stories that we're going to talk about. Peter David um, is the co-creator for a few different things. He co-created Spider-Man 2099. I don't know if you knew that. 
he wrote on X Factor in the 90s as well. A lot of like the sort of like 90s sort of heroes that we know that popped up during that era, like you can kind of credit them with Peter David to some extent. Another aside, as much as he reinvented the Hulk, he also reinvented Aquaman in the 90s. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. He's the one who gave Aquaman his long hair and his hook hand. Oh, yeah. All. Yeah, he pulled Aquaman out of ex- of obscurity. You know, he'd been in obscurity, God, for 20 years at that point until Peter David came around and reinvented him. He's He's uh, got a knack for bringing, char- like, refreshing characters in ways that make audiences interested again. Yeah, he's he's kind of like a comics reader, comics writer, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like, he's a big name within the fandom and within the industry. Yeah. But, like, he's not mentioned in, like, alongside the greats, which I think he should because, like, he has so many fan favorite runs. Yeah. His Hulk run, Aquaman, um, he has a lot of classic Spider-Man stories. Not one, but two X-Factor runs that mm-hmm. are just beloved. He's He's been in the industry forever, and he's awesome. So. Yeah. He's a badass. And he I think he hits this perfect blend of like telling serious, like compelling stories, but also sticking to the sort of absurdism and fun that like comic stories need to, you know, remain enjoyable. He can hit on some heavy stuff, but his comics are still very much also like fun, absurd romps through fantasy settings. Yeah, they're kind of like a perfect balance of you, you read his stuff and you're not like, oh, this is just too silly and trite. For me, mm-hmm. like, I want something a bit more mature. His style is, like, the perfect melding of what you want and expect out of a comic with mm-hmm. the more character-centric perspective. Yeah. I think. So, like Tyler mentioned earlier, he wrote The Hulk for 12 years, starting in 1987. Um, he was given a lot of creative freedom with the character just because the Hulk comic was failing at the time. He's the one who is responsible for sort of, like, solidifying the Hulk's different personalities, the classic green savage Hulk that we know who's more like the child like simpleton who gets stronger as he gets angrier and just wants to be left alone. The Joe Fixit personality, the gray Hulk who I'm sure that any like serious Hulk fan knows this, but the gray Hulk was actually the original Hulk in the earliest comics. He was gray before he turned green and Joe fix who he would later gain the moniker of Joe Fixit. And the gray Hulk is a lot more of a, a more clever, smarter, and, like, a lot meaner version of the Hulk. Like, he's kind of an asshole <laughs> instead of just, you know... Kind of like an anti-hero kind of yeah. morally gray character. Yeah, and he also created the identity of the Professor Hulk, who is the merged personalities of Bruce Banner, the Savage Hulk, and Joe Fixit into this sort of idealized version of the Hulk who has Banner's smarts and Hulk's strength and is really more of, like, the sort of traditional hero archetype. He makes quips, you know, he fights bad guys. He's really more of a traditional hero than the others, um, which is kind of what has kept me off of reading his stuff, is, like, I- I'm not sure how much I really go for that, is just having the Hulk as being a straight-up, you know, hero, but, like, I need to read some of it, because there's some very interesting things that I've seen from the Professor Hulk run. I um, just love that he wears clothes. <laughs> yeah, he he buys some real big tank tops and cargo pants to walk around in. Keeps his hair in a ponytail. He's like nineties hot. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like oh Hulk Daddy, <laughs> big green daddy. So yeah, Peter David, he's a he's a legend for the Hulk. He literally has a whole series of collections called Hulk Visionaries, Peter David. And like I I owned like the first two or three of them where it was like Joe Fixit's return which were great. But let's get into the stories we're actually going to talk about tonight. 
Tyler hasn't read one of them in a while, so he might not be as fresh on it. I completely neglected my homework. <laughs> um, I forgot that we were also, because I thought we were just doing the end. Yeah. And I forgot that later on we decided to do the end and future imperfect because the end is rather short. Yeah. But being the old man that I am, I'm completely brain farted on future imperfect. But I have read it. I just don't remember too many of the details. So I'll just have Isaac kind of lead me through yeah. it. And we, hopefully I- let's, let's do future imperfect first because it, it comes first. And a lot, I feel like a lot of the themes that come up in future imperfect are fleshed out more in the end. Okay. So, so even though you're not as fresh on it, I think we need to talk about it first, just for the sake of... Um, Let me see if I could at least remember how it starts. Yeah, give me the recap of Future Imperfect. Okay, um, per, per the title, it uh-huh. takes place in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that a it's a dystopian future. Yes. Isn't it called... Isn't, like, the city or whatever... It's like called, called dystopia, dystopia yeah. Ah, okay, so... Got a good detail there that I remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, it is run by a f- evil future version of the Hulk called the Maestro. Mm-hmm. And a group of resistance fighters? Yeah. Bring Professor Hulk from the present to fight the Maestro. Yes. Okay, so so far so good. So far so good. Okay. And... Do you remember who the leader of the resistance was? Uh, Yeah, what's his name? Rick Jones. Yeah. And he's like old and like... Is he losing his mind, or is he, like, dying from gamma irradiation? He's old, he's losing his mind, and he has a collection of, like, all the heroes and villains of ages past. Uh, Which would would come up later in Old Man Logan, they'd do that again, but, like, I think this might have been one of the earliest comics to have that sort of, like, collecting the relics of the heroic age. I remember the art by George George Perez being fantastic, because Mm -hmm. George Perez is as a legend. He fills every page with so many details. He literally has a Where's Waldo page in the comic. There's a Waldo in one of the in one of the I things. I know that! That's amazing! Yeah, he hid oh. Waldo in one of the spreads, like one of the two-page spreads. The f- introduction of Rick Jones is amazing because you get to see like the whole museum of heroes that he has and there's like Spider-Man's mask, there's Thor's hammer, there's Captain America's shield, there's like all the ones you'd expect. He also has some really dark stuff. He has Wolverine's skeleton. Yep, I remember that. He has Beast's skinned fur on the wall. Don't remember that. Yeah, it's in the background. I saw it. Jesus. Yeah, he's got all kinds of stuff that's like real dark. He went around like collecting all these dead heroes' bodies and weapons and memorabilia and everything. So like, you can tell Rick's a little off. Because Rick Jones, he wasn't just relegated to Hulk. Hasn't he just kind of paddled around the entire Marvel Universe at some point? Rick Jones, yeah, Rick Jones used to be like one of the most central figures in the Marvel Universe. He was a sidekick to Captain America for a while. He was a sidekick to the original Captain Marvel, not Carol Danvers, but like the uh, Marvel, yeah, Marvel, like the Kree soldier. Um, And I think he was Captain Marvel for a while there. Rick Jones used to be like a like a main confidant to the Avengers. Like Rick Jones is an incredibly crucial figure to the in like the Marvel universe in its earliest years. What are you waiting for, MCU? Don't be cowards. Yeah, it's still it's Rick Jones. Kind of too little, too late, I'm afraid. But like, I I have so much love for Rick Jones as a character because there's so much to him that has not been explored in anything else but the comics of him being the best friend 
to like the world's most feared and hated monster, but also being like a friend and confidant to like the world's greatest heroes at the same time. There's so much complexity yeah. to Rick Jones. Good point. Yeah, I mean, I'm not overly familiar with like some of his deeper cuts, mm-hmm. but with characters like that, like it's hard for writers to forget what to do with them. Yeah, it's like, oh, he's just the the human dude that's like here, uh, like amongst all this crazy superheroic nonsense. Like, where do you plug him in? Where do you fit him? Like, what do yeah. you do with him? He's he's kind of like the Jimmy Olsen of the of the Marvel universe. Right. Like, he's always there, but never central. Yeah, like when and when somebody figures out how to utilize him well, he's really fun. But mm-hmm. most of the time, it's kind of hard to be like, ah, eh, Rick Jones, just get over there, like get out of the way, right? You want to continue with your recap of Future Imperfect? You're doing great so far. Um, okay, those I, I hit the main points. Mm-hmm. Um, this is bad, but also what I remember is the weird sexual stuff that happens. That's that's an important <laughs> thing to talk about. So let's let's get into that recap a bit. Um, so first off, the Resistance is led by Rick Jones, but also his granddaughter, um, Janice, named after Janice Joplin. It's interesting because we get to this world of dystopia. And it it is the kind of dystopian you expect. It's like a lot of people living in poverty in the streets, a lot of crime going on, uh, like ruled over by a tyrant who really doesn't care about the citizens, but only his own like hedonistic pleasure. What's really funny about this comic was the ways that they tried to get around the sort of censorship at the time, because this was back when like, ah, fuck, what was that code called? There was like a comics code for the longest time. That like, I, want, I keep wanting to call it the Hayes Code, but that's film. There was a comics code that basically is like, if you have any of these sorts of themes or words in your comics, we won't put our thing on your comic and it won't sell as well. And it stuck around until the early 2000s of all times. I think it's just called the Comics Code. It might have been. They got around a lot of the like problems with swearing by just coming up with their own future swears. And it's like, it's really, it's really disjointed because they'll talk about like, oh, frack, they got him instead of like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like they talk like Take that. And so they talk about like, oh, he's are you sliding me? Are you sliding me? So they didn't just like make up like language for cursing. They made up like this whole like new future slang. And some of it, it it's so damn funny. It comes off as like so weird and out of time and out of touch. I know it was intended to sort of show, like, the disjointed future from where we are today, but, like, it just comes off as so damn funny. Janice Jones goes back in time at Rick's behest to get Professor Hulk to fight the Maestro, because the Maestro is this tyrant ruling over dystopia. What's interesting is, like Tyler said, this was the Professor Hulk persona of the time, so this is the sort of banner mind, and this is also the same personality who eventually becomes the maestro when the maestro becomes evil he was the professor holt before this he's not necessarily like a separate personality he's more like what the professor hulk terminates to like the final result of the professor hulk personality this much smarter much more cunning version of the hulk who has all of branner's wits and smarts but is also, like, a cruel-hearted tyrant ruling over the world. For the time, this was a very interesting character, because, like, uh, comics do, like, evil doppelgangers all the time, but the Professor Hulk persona was supposed to be this sort of idealized version of the Hulk, like, 
finally Banner has found some notion of peace within himself that has resulted in him becoming a true hero. And then we get this version of the maestro where we still see all of Banner's smarts and everything, but all of his compassion and empathy is gone. It's the evil doppelganger, but for it to be like the Hulk's evil doppelganger, a character who is already sort of suffused in moral grays, it's an interesting angle to take. I think it's why the Maestro has stuck around within the fandom for so long, of even though there's not too many stories with him. Yeah, um, what I find interesting about the Maestro, and um, from, what I, from what I remember of the story, as you said, like other superheroes have had like evil version stories through time. Something about the Maestro is extra sad and extra tragic, because so much of the Hulk story is just Bruce and the Hulk trying to find peace mm-hmm. from each other within themselves to just not be hunted anymore, to not be in pain anymore. And to not, like, hurt and destroy anymore. Here comes the maestro, and, like, Hulk and Banner are probably in the best place they are at this point in his life. And then, like, all of a sudden, like, here's this, like, reminder, like, hey, no matter how much you try, no matter what you do, this is your end point. You know? There's nothing you can do. Because eventually, you're me, and here I am, and, and this is what your life has become. It's also a different kind of monstrosity than we've seen with the Hulk before this point. You know, before this point, you had the savage green Hulk who was like a child throwing a tantrum who would like destroy and rampage against his better, like, ju- like against his knowledge. He wasn't smart enough to really keep his strength under control. And if he was pushed to fighting, he would, you know, go on a rampage. Then you had the Grey Hulk, who was meaner and more sort of conniving than the Green Hulk, but he didn't really go out of his way to pick too many fights. He did occasionally with people he really despised, but for the most part, he was still just kind of like, I don't want people fucking with me, I just kind of want to do what I do. He literally became Joe Fixit, just an enforcer in Vegas, just so he could avoid the whole superhero scene and just kind of like, you know, get by on his own life, on his own. But with the Professor Hulk, we get to this point where, like, now the Hulk's a hero again, and then we see the Maestro, who is this version of the Hulk who's a monster, not just in the sense of, like, he causes destruction and damage, but he does so willfully. He's intentionally hurting people. He's intentionally being this tyrant who just very literally rapes and pillages to do whatever the hell he pleases. It's a version of the Hulk who no longer cares about being left alone and now has found a place in society by ruling over it. He's the Hulk that says, I'm tired of these puny humans, you know, treating me like a monster. Instead of a monster, I'll be their god. Yeah, and um, what makes it sad is that you can tell how much this is torturing Bruce Hulk. Like, he gets injured at one point, right? Yes. Maestro breaks his neck and has him paralyzed for, like, days on end. You're reading this comic, and from what I remember, half of it is just, like, sitting with Bruce Hulk as he's just kind of ruminating on, like, what to do, what this means, if he can stop it, like, if this is his destiny. And a lot of it is, yeah, a lot of it is the maestro trying to convince Banner that, like, this is not a bad world I've created for us. I've created a good world for us. You could be a god here with me. 
Yeah. And it's like, maybe I'm just extrapolating this from my own memory and it doesn't quite have this kind of tinge to it. But like, it's kind of like maybe Maestro is like appealing to, you know, the Savage Hulk side of Bruce Hulk at this point. Like, hey, remember how we were hounded and hunted our whole life? Remember how humanity just wanted us dead and was afraid of us and how you like just wanted to be left alone? Well, like, look, like we we came out on top at the end, you know? It's it's ours now. We don't have to run anymore. We don't have to be hunted anymore. <laughs> we're king of the mountain. Don't you want that peace of mind? Yeah. And also the and, and also the idea that like the fact that he survived is proof that humanity was the real monsters. The the world ends due to like nuclear holocaust, World War Three, and Maestro is like one of the few left standing because the Hulk's like immune to radiation. So he he does, he does a lot of talking about how like not only is this a greater world for us and we're like king of the mountain here, but also like humanity didn't do any better than we are. You know, humanity destroyed itself and I rebuilt the world. So like, what does it matter if I take some hedonistic pleasures in the end? Like I'm better than the puny humans who killed themselves. And I want to, I want to dig into the, um, stack stuff like because it's we've got it's, to yeah it's pumping at the back of my mind yeah um maestro has a harem concubines unwilling concubines yeah. but that's not all um if i remember correctly there's one concubine that kind of looks like betty there, Am I there is that? a very very disturbing scene where the hulk the present hulk professor hulk after having his neck broken and being paralyzed uh is visited at the behest of the maestro by a concubine who looks very much like Betty and who calls herself Betty at um, Maestro's behest. And um, she she rapes an unwilling Hulk. Yeah. And I'm I'm sorry. I'm not like laughing because of, it's, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's it's un, it's uncomfortable. And I just like I'm laughing because of, of like the oh, my God, they went there in a mainstream Marvel comic book. Yeah. Having a hero, a male hero in the late 80s. And it's, it's like, it's like this weird th- three way rape. And like, because the concubine who calls herself Betty, she doesn't want to do this. Mm-hmm. She's being forced under duress by Maestro to do it. So in some weird, twisted psychological way, it's almost like the Hulk raping himself. Like, as weird as that sounds, like, I mean, that, that subtext is there. Yeah. Like, it- and it's, and it's pure psychological torture because if you know anything about, Hulk and Bruce and and Betty, mm-hmm. like it's like the most torturous love story in in comics because like they can never be together, they can never be happy. It's it's nothing but melodrama. And here the Maestro is like rubbing that in Bruce Hulk's face in like the darkest way possible. Yeah, there's it, it gets really dark, not just because of the actual rape itself, um, which it is full on rape. The you, the Hulk is screaming stop throughout the whole thing. You, you don't explicitly see it but you you know what's happening yeah it's 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 dark there's some really really dark dialogue from the maestro at this point too because he talks about how he talks about the feelings that come along like he's a very aware of like what that rape is doing to banner psychologically like he talks about the mixture of pain and suffering and grief with like physical pleasure and how it's going to drive him to madness and make him easier to manipulate and it's so fucking dark 
like mainstream comics, there's a lot of stuff that gets dark nowadays, and there's a lot of them that you can look at with these sort of dark themes. But for this to come out during this time period of like the late 80s, I'm sure some people would read this and think it was edgy for the sake of being edgy. But like, it's shocking where this that was willing to go at this time period. Yeah, um, it's 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 easy to kind of hear this if you're not familiar with it and think, oh, this must have come out in the 90s, you know, edgy 90s comic. But no, this predated that. And or no, it did come I out just, in the 90s. Sorry, this came oh, out it did? In, oh. yeah, early 90s. Sorry, I was okay. getting it mixed up with when P- Peter David started. He started in the late 80s and he, this comic was actually written in the early 90s. Now I re- now I regret having a stupid brain fart, not being more familiar with it. Um, because yeah, this was published I, I, in ninety two and ninety three. I remember reading it for the first time and being like, "Jesus, holy shit!" I don't know how I feel about this. It's like, messed up. It's a messed up scene, and I, I can totally see somebody reading this and being incredibly uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's it doesn't glorify the moment. Like, oh no, no, no it's no, it's no. not glorified in any sense of the it. Like, it's it's meant to show how absolutely depraved the maestro is as a character because he has like completely given up the notion of the Hulk and Betty's relationship is very complicated throughout comics. Like Tyler said, it's this enormous tragedy that goes on because you know she has to cope with the fact that Bruce Banner is not one but multiple personalities. And she has to deal with the fact that he turns into a monster. Does she also love the monster? And, you know, he's always trying to, you know, make life easier for her, despite the fact that he's literally on the run from the government and her own father, a general in the military. Also her ex. Yeah. Um, General Talbot yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But in Future Imperfect, we see a version of the Hulk through the Maestro who doesn't give a fuck about any notion of like love or selflessness or compassion for one another. He literally has a scene where he talks about like, uh, I prefer my women a little more submissive and, you know, thoughtless. He's like, uh, yeah, he's like Betty's biggest flaw was always her mind. It was always the fact that she had a mind of her own. And it's so sick. This is the most monstrous version of the Hulk. There are other versions of the Hulk that do some, like, dark stuff and have some really, like, grotesque abilities. But the Maestro is always going to be the biggest monster version of the Hulk because he's so depraved. He's the, he's, he's a monster in the sense of being a tyrant. He's the monster we know because instead of being, like, this isolated loner who sometimes has outbursts of anger. He's someone who is purposefully ignoring the like benefit of others and the goodwill of others for his own hedonistic pleasure. It's the version of the Hulk that humanity sees come to fruition. The maestro is the Hulk that Thunderbolt Ross sees that the public sees that, you know, Hulk's few friends try to tell people that that's not what he really is. But then here comes Maestro, turned into what people are afraid of what the Hulk is when he wasn't. It's also Bruce Hulk, you know, looking at what he tried to fight public perception as. What he personally became. Not just like, it's not just Bruce Banner's perception of the Hulk. It is Bruce Banner who has become an idealized version of himself, now realizing that even that idealized version can become a corrupted monster and perhaps the worst version of the Hulk to exist. Yeah, and I don't recall if 
the story touches on like any sort of like monologue or like inner thought that present um professor hulk has about like never turning into that and making sure it doesn't happen i don't remember if like he has any kind of dialogue in or outer about that but he just kind of like as the story resolves he just kind of does what he knows he has to do which is be the hero he is in the moment and the hero he wants to be and stop the maestro and go home and that's and that's what he succeeds in doing do you remember Um, how he does it it's so cool he he uses the time machine majigger dr doom's time machine that rick jones found Yes, and he kills Maestro, quote-unquote kills Maestro, with the same Gamma Bomb that turned him into the Hulk in the first place. Yeah, he sends him back to the Gamma Bomb, and it kills the Hulk, which, you know... There's some symbol... Oh, this, oh, this the symbolism's so good. Oh, it's so beautiful, because, like, it's a two-page spread, and on the left side of the page, you have, like, the original transformation of Bruce Banner into the Hulk. Like, the Gamma Bomb exploding behind him, his face, like, glowing with radiation as he screams. Like, it imitates, like, those original comics so well. And then, like, across the page, you have the huge Gamma explosion itself. And then on the right side of the page, you have, like, the Maestro screaming, his body irradiated as it dissolves into, like, this skeletal dust. Like, it's so good. It's such good symbolism. And thing that brought him into the world took him out mm-hmm. by his own hand. Don't they, uh, they, they fight in the Resistance... They fought in Rick like, Jones's uh, museum to the heroes, and like um, amongst all of the the dead, yeah, and the symbols of the dead, yeah. Maestro kills Rick Jones because Rick Jones has been in like a hover chair that might have belonged to Professor X. I don't know. That sounds that sounds about right. He I has sort of he has him being... a wheelchair of Professor Xavier in there. I don't remember if the one he's in is actually pre- Professor. Xavier. It's like a futuristic hover chair, which I don't know if that was like introduced for Professor X at the time or not. But it's really sad. Rick Jones actually pulls out Captain America's shield to block the Maestro's punch, and he gets pushed back into Wolverine's claws and dies on the claws. So, like, one relic of the past is used to defend himself while another one is killing him. Yeah, he surrounds himself with it, and it's... (laughs) it's how he dies. And he gets a really he gets a really touching end though because after they defeat the Maestro and everything before the Hulk the Professor Hulk goes back to the past, he puts Rick's ashes on Captain America's shield and just tosses it like out into the stratosphere basically and says he can have like one last adventure. Oh, that's sweet. I don't remember that part. That's yeah, cool. it's it's like one some of the final panels of the comic. So it's it's two pa- it's two issues and they're double issues, right? Yeah, I think they're double length pages. Yeah. So in in two double issues, it tells us like vast, detailed, epic yet personal story. Mm -hmm. Probably top five most beloved Hulk stories. Oh, for sure. Definitely most iconic. No doubt about that. There's definitely some flaws with it. Like I said, the future talk is almost hilariously bad. Um, with its whole, like, frack and sliding and whatnot, it's, it's so, like, jarring to hear them talk. And I, I can definitely see people getting uncomfortable with, like, the themes of, like, sexual predation and rape that are throughout this. There's also a lot of grooming. There's a scene where Maestro goes out to, like, the farms and the wastes and, like, basically takes a teenage girl from her father to become one of his concubines, and it's so fucked up. But, um, yeah, if, if you're not, if you're not 
prepared for it, it definitely throws you off. Yeah, it, sure. it, it is supposed to make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to see how absolutely monstrous the maestro is. Um, but I can see people like reading this comic and being deeply uncomfortable with it. It's definitely not for everyone. Despite those flaws, it's like it's a great story that just shows how bad Banner has it off. Because even when he finally seems to have everything figured out, even when he's at his most heroic, he can see like how you're always you always have the potential to be a monster. You, Bruce Banner, not just the Hulk. Is there any other themes and symbolism of Future Imperfect you want to touch um, before we get to the end? Because I'm I'm tapped out because, like I said, I <laughs> uh, haven't read it in a while, so I'm fuzzy. So you got to lead the way on this one more than me. We can move on from Future Imperfect. I think that's most of what I wanted to talk about with it. Gotcha. Uh, let's right. move into the end. Uh, the end, like we mentioned earlier, was a comic adaptation of a short story that was in an anthology. The end was part of Marvel's The End series. The Hulk isn't the only one who had this. There was The End for a bunch of characters. Uh, these were sort of like non-canon final stories for characters like Wolverine, Captain America, Iron Man, Punisher, and the Fantastic Four. Uh, a lot of characters got this The End treatment where it's like, this is what it could be like if we decided to, you know, stop writing this character's comics. This is where we might leave them after all of their stories are said and done. Basically a what if, but under a different yeah. gimmick. Yeah. That being said, even though this is a non-canon ending, I'm going to go ahead and preface this whole story by saying, for me, this is the ending of the Hulk. Like, if they were to stop writing the Hulk today, this is where his story would end, with this story. Uh, because it is... Oh. It, 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 <laughs> It it, I know it hurts, but it, it wraps in so well all of the themes of Bruce Banner and the Hulk. Let's, let's get into it. So there's not too much in the way of plot to talk about. The premise is that Bruce Banner, a, the Hulk, is the last surviving member of the human race. Everybody else having been killed off by nuclear holocaust during World War III. Very similar to Future Imperfect. Perfect, yep. Uh, except this time, everyone's dead. It's literally just Bruce Banner. And Bruce Banner basically just wanders this dead world on his own, almost wanting to die, and definitely wanting to die by the end of the story, but still battling with the Hulk for control of his own body. All the while, he's being followed by this vidbot that, like, records his final days that was sent by a bunch of different alien races that just wanted to make sure the human race was dead. <laughs> it's so messed up. The scroll and the Kree, which, if you know anything about Marvel Comics, have been warring for, like, thousands of years in the comics. They had a temporary alliance to ensure that humanity was gone, and they sent, like, this vidbot down to, like, watch his final days, which is so messed up. But, yeah, where do you where do you think we should start with this story? Um, that's a good question, because it's it's so internal. It's, mm -hmm. it's basically just a 40-page character study. Yeah. I'll jump on your point of, like, this is my headcanon on, like, the ending of the character. It's It's hilarious, because, like, I love sad and depressing shit. Like, I... I don't mean that to sound edgy, but, like, <laughs> sad and depressing shit, like, you know, it's, 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 it's a story choice that appeals to me. Yeah. And 
the first time I read this, I thought it was really good. I'm like, that was good. Yeah, that was cool. It was, it was dark. It was interesting. It was sad. Mm-hmm. But for the pod reading this, um, I had, like I said, been moving through some backlog Hulk, um, runs. Yeah. And getting, getting a new appreciation for the character. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is about right now. Maybe it's just everything that's been going on in the world, how I feel within myself. Yeah. But like, I am really, ingratiating myself and feeling deep, deep sympathy and empathy for this character yeah. in a way that I haven't before. So reading the end, it just hurt. Like, I don't want it to be his ending. I, I know. I, I, I want him so bad to just f- Bruce and Hulk to just find peace and be okay. But I can't say it's not an appropriate ending because it is because, Hey, it's in track with how his story has been told since the sixties, you know, mm-hmm. since his inception. Yeah. It's just kind of, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I well, can't argue and say that. Yeah. This is probably the definitive ending for the Hulk. If they were to stop making Hulk comics. Yeah. It's like you said, it's a, it's a very long character piece. Very little actually happens. A lot of the actual panels are just Bruce Banner wondering this way. And like a 200 year old Bruce Banner, wondering like this desolate landscape with a very few action sequences. There's one where he's attacked by a swarm of radioactive cockroaches who are like the last surviving creatures on earth besides the whole. So disturbing. Yeah. Such a disturbing scene because he's running for his life and like, he's having this inner monologue of like, why am I running? I should just let them take me. Just let them take me. But like, he can't like reject his own survival instinct the Hulk comes out, starts smashing these bugs, but there's so many of them, and they eat the Hulk alive, and then you just see his, like, eaten corpse with, like, its intestines and everything hanging out, and its skin gone, and just muscle and skeleton showing, like, after the the cockroaches are done, they just leave the remains of this corpse, and the Hulk just slowly regenerates from it, like, the Hulk refuses to die, the Hulk has a healing factor like Wolverine. I don't know if every per- Marvel fan knows that. Some of the abilities that the Hulk has are a little like a more esoteric. Also, fun fact: this is completely off topic. Do you know the Hulk can see ghosts? I, I didn't. I didn't know that as like a verified like yeah, just kind of power he has. The now. Hulk. The Hulk can see ghosts and astral projections. Uh, that that was a way that. Doctor Strange and Charles Xavier would get in touch with him at times. He could see their astral projections. That makes sense. And it kind of ties into what's been happening in Immortal Hulk, too, with the green door and all that. Yeah. Anyway, the Hulk's, like, would slowly regenerate just because this this whole story in particular, let's get into some of the specific themes of it. One of the core themes of the Hulk, if not the core theme of the Hulk, is the idea, and this is an old, old mythological idea of multiple souls trapped within one body. Multiple identities fighting for control over one body, one destiny. Here we have the Hulk and Banner fighting for control over their body in a way that's pushed to its absolute limits. Banner is human. He has finite limits, and he's lost everything he loves in the world. All of the people he knew... All of his, like, research, all of it's gone. He has nothing less to live for. He just wants to die. But the Hulk, the Hulk is a being who has spent his entire life running 
trying to avoid being like caught by the military or superheroes, trying to just be left alone. Literally, Hulk just wants to be left alone is like his second most popular phrase after Hulk is strongest one there is and Hulk smash. So here the Hulk finally has what he always claimed he wanted. He has solitude. He has a world where he's no longer being hunted and hounded except occasionally by these cockroaches. By mutant man eating cockroaches. Yeah. And the Hulk is still not satisfied because he's still trapped with Banner. He still has Banner fighting against him for control over his body. And neither one of them is right here. You know, Banner just wants to move on. He wants to be at peace and, like, die and, like, be reunited with his loved ones in whatever afterlife exists in the Marvel Universe. And the Hulk just refuses because he sees that as, like, a way of letting everyone else win. He sees, like, I am the strongest one there is. I survived where everyone else died. And I finally get to be left alone. And it, this anger and resentment that he has is just so palpable it's such like a testament to like how much damage he's taken over the years how much the world has hurt him as a monster as like seeing him as a monster it's finally turned him into not the kind of monster we see in maestro where he's just this hedonistic tyrant but now a monster who's hurting himself and banner through this like resentment and refusal to die just because if he dies, if he gives in and lets himself be at peace, he sees that as a loss. (laughs) So heavy. It's so Um, heavy. And it's such a classical struggle. Yeah. And because, I mean, we haven't made the obvious obvious, but like the Hulk is just kind of like, it's a, it's a, he's a big old metaphor for like the id and, your personal personal demons and your personal trauma and your anger and everything that you let fester or hurt you that you keep inside personified that that's who the Hulk is far beyond being a a big green monster that can beat the shit out of anything and break anything. He's everything that you don't want to face about yourself and can't face about yourself given flesh and blood. Just the fact that at the end of everything, it's still just Bruce and still just the Hulk. And throughout all this time, they still can't see eye to eye and come to some sort of level playing field with each other. At first, it's kind of like when I first started reading this again, I was actually kind of not liking it. I was like, man, this is kind of a lazy way to go about it. But then like when I finished it and I thought about it and like, I'm like, I mean, it can't be any other way. Like, because they've been through so much, they're like different people on so many different aspects. Like they're, there's, they're never gonna, gonna be eye to eye because their hatred for each other is like on the atomic level. Like it, like it, it transcends disagreement on ethics or morality. It's like, it's what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's almost like biblical. They're like antagonism. Yeah. And there's that biblical sort of, there's a mix of like Greek and biblical mythology that gets mixed in by the end of the comic of like the story of Prometheus bringing fire to man, but also a vision that Banner has of like Eve coming to him to start a new Eden and also seeing his friends in heaven. Like this, this is like an age old story. There are so many myths about multiple souls fighting for control over one body throughout all cultures throughout the world. 
but this is like a telling of it that is like so ingratiated into modern culture and brought in a way that's like immediately recognizable and empathizable. I, I can't even express how like how much this story speaks to me in so many different ways. Banner and Hulk are both aspects of each other and they both they're two sides of the same coin and they're both sides of the coin that hate what the other represents. Banner is the ego. He's control. He's maintaining like repressing feelings and pushing things aside in order to maintain existence in everyday society. The Hulk is the id. He just wants to, you know, live life as he sees fit without having to, you know, bow to the whims of the world around him and without having everyone else force him to meet their societal standards. And these two identities are just in constant turmoil with each other. They cannot, they cannot be brought together. Like I said earlier, how I'm like, I'm seeing the character in a new light now. What hit me about reading him recently in this story in particular is just how much of a metaphor he is, even back in the day before this was probably even a thought in the creator's heads, the writer's heads, like mm-hmm. how much of a metaphor the Hulk is for mental illness. Oh, absolutely. And the stigmatization society still has for mental illness. Of course, people in the real world, they don't turn into giant green irradiated monsters because of the mental illness, obviously. Yeah. But like what he represents is, is a total metaphor for mental illness and how society treats it. Not to get too personal, but as somebody who struggles with his own, you know, anxieties and hangups and personal issues, like reading him recently in this story in particular, just like really hit on a different level where I'm just like, it's more than just like comic book stories that I'm having fun reading. You know, it's just like, man, like Hulk and me, we got, <laughs> we got some things in common. That's <laughs> why <laughs> so I think it's the perfect ending for Hulk because it hits all of the core themes of the character in a way that immediately makes them recognizable. Let's talk about the ending of the comic. There's a moment where Banner tries to kill himself by throwing himself off a cliff. Hulk transforms and saves him because he refuses to die. But the comic finally ends with Banner having a heart attack while after having a dream of being reunited with this beautiful woman who closely resembles Betty. And she talks to him about starting a new Eden. But he has this dream. It gives him a heart attack because he's over 200 years old. And he talks about how, like, the Hulk may be able to go on forever, but I'm still mortal. And then he starts making all these comparisons between himself and Prometheus. Like, just like Prometheus brought fire to man, the Hulk... Like, he brought the Gamma Bomb into the world, like this primordial force into the world. The Hulk being one of the earliest Titans in the Marvel world, you know, the Hulk was literally, after the Fantastic Four, the earliest Marvel character. You know, I think Captain America is, uh, he's older because he came out in the 40s, but like, I don't think that was necessarily like Marvel comics, or if it was, it wasn't Stan Lee's Marvel comics, they purchased the character later. The Hulk was one of the earliest Marvel heroes, and this idea of him being, like, the last of the Titans left after all the other heroes are gone, he's the last Titan striding the Earth, doomed to suffer for his hubris. Bruce is having this whole, like, 
mythological metaphor working out in his head is he's basically just like dying and the Hulk is in return trying to figure out what's going on. He's like, what is Banner doing? What, like, what is this trick that you're trying to pull on me, Banner? Why are you trying to kill me? Banner is going through, like, he's having this realization of how he and the Hulk are like the myth of Prometheus, but the Hulk is at the same time just trying to figure out what's going on. He's like, what is Banner talking about? What is this trick that he's using to try and get me this time? That's a good segue into a broader topic of, you know, comics as modern day mythology. I mean, mm-hmm. you hear that a lot. You hear people say, our comic books are great because they're our modern mythology. At first, you'd be like, okay, but yeah, but what does that mean? Like, well, here's a perfect example. Just this one story with this one character, like, so many, like, mythological themes and ideas are tied into these characters. That's what people mean when they say, you know, comics are a modern mythology. And and that's why I think people are still so attracted to comic books. Why fans are forever going to fight back against, you know, the perception that, you know, they're just silly. They're for kids. They're outlandish. They're goofy. Like, stop taking your cape shit so seriously. It's like, no, like that's (laughs) comics and these and these superhero characters. They're just a, a valid vehicle for you know, deep and emotional and philosophical storytelling is anything else. Yeah. What a myth is, and there's tons of definitions of myths by tons of wonderful storytellers smarter than me. But what a myth is to me is a story of realism within a story of fantasy. And what comic books do so well is that they take the fantasy, the science fiction usually, but also sometimes higher fantasy elements that we know And they take these universal realistic issues that we see in the modern day and they blend them together. The Hulk himself is a is a result of the Cold War. You know, when the Hulk came out, he was a warning about the whole Cold War mentality. And like the Gamma Bomb was meant to be like a way to end the Cold War and everything. So, like, he's always been this warning about the dangers of the atomic age and of, like, escalating threats of using, basically, force against force. So, when we talk about comics as modern myths, we're talking about how they take all of these big, over-the-top, bombastic personalities and stories and everything, and they fill them with these very real, universal themes and elements that we can apply to our everyday lives the story finally ends with banner dying mm-hmm. bruce banner he has a heart attack and he dies but the hulk doesn't the hulk transforms in time to save himself and he he says that he can never turn back into banner or else he'll die too He's gonna die, yep. yeah and the final shots is just the hulk alone on this cliff And he says, Hulk will never die. Hulk is strongest when there is. Hulk is only one there is. Hulk feels cold. And it's just so goddamn sad. I'm like, I just got sad you reading it back. (laughs) It's, it's so painful because the Hulk is the misunderstood monster. He's the Frankenstein's monster trope of someone who just wants a place in the world, but the world refuses to give it to him. 
And in this story, you see him finally acknowledging that, like, I could only find my place when everyone else was dead. I could only find some semblance of peace when everyone else is dead, but I'm still stuck with Banner. If I can just get rid of Banner, maybe, maybe I'll be happy. And then the Hulk gets what he wants. He's finally, truly alone. And he just feels cold. Yeah, he doesn't have anything to fight against anymore. It's so, so powerful. It's such a powerful ending. It's so much of who he is, so much of his, his, his existence is defined by fighting back, mm-hmm. you know, by resisting by any means necessary. And when there's nothing else to resist, what else is there? There's, you know, he has nothing. He, he's resisted so strongly. He's the last living thing on earth. He ain't going to talk to the cockroaches, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just him now. And it, it leaves you to wonder, like, is he still going to keep fighting? You know, is yeah. he still going to resist? Is he going to resist himself? Mm-hmm. The, the feelings that he's stuck with now? It leaves it very open. Like you, maybe he dies. Maybe he finally gives in, or maybe he just continues a miserable existence of being completely isolated. Yeah. And, oh, God, (laughs) the power. Yeah, it's Uh, the emotional power. mm -hmm. This is, I would say, one of, if not the most definitive Hulk stories. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read them all, but I can't say I uh, disagree at this point in time. It's it's not one that I would recommend for, like, newcomers. For new readers, no. (laughs) For new readers, because they're going to read this and... They may think, oh, it's just another edgy, post-apocalyptic character piece. But, like, for anyone who knows the character, this is the story that defines the Hulk. Yeah, and it does it all in 40 pages. Yeah. it's, it's With it's, minimal dialogue and minimal action. Yeah, it's, in, it's an incredible piece of work. It might be Peter David's finest Hulk story, and that's from a man who wrote the character for 12 years. Yeah, and... um. I hate this to sound like a cheap shot. I don't mean it to be, but we're never going to get anything even half this, you know, introspective cinematically from the Hulk, like, any longer. Um, I think we do get it in 2003, but again, that's a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as of right now, I just, I can't see Marvel and Disney taking a shot at no. exploring the Hulk. And it doesn't have to be as, as grim dark as, as this is, but I do not see them even attempting half of, there of will, what we discussed. There so will far. never be a Hulk film that comes close to matching what the comics have done with the character. And that's not just me being like, oh, the comics are always better. It, it's just a fact that. The format of comics where you have very specifically a story told through a series of images broken up in a specific way, along with dialogue presented in a specific way that makes these stories so immediately compelling. When you have them depicted through film or through animation or anything else, a lot of stories like this can be depicted this way, but there's something about this combination of reading it like you would a book and seeing it through the art that just like hits you. You have to read this in your own mind, I think, in order to feel it the way it was intended to be felt. 
God, can you imagine if like they bit the bullet and um went Logan with like a Hulk movie like in the near future? Oh, like, that'd be crazy. Oh my, it would be. Uh, it I, would be phenomenal if they went the Logan route with mm-hmm. with a new Hulk movie, but. I don't see it happening anytime soon. No, no way. Because, like, I, I want the public to see what the character is capable of thematically. Right. Like, again, I'm not trying to knock what has come before because I think the MCU has done good things with the character. But you and I can both agree that we don't like how the character ended so no. far the Hulk, in the MCU. The Hulk has been on a downward spiral ever since the first Avengers film. That was when he peaked. The first hot take. The Incredible Hulk film was boring. There's elements of it that I still kind of like, but the Incredible Hulk MCU film is dull. The Avengers does the best with it because even though we don't really get much of the Hulk, as in not Banner, but the Hulk's personality... Yeah. There's great buildup for him. We see uh-huh. this. Ver- we see br- the pain that Bruce Banner has to deal with on a day to day basis of being like, everyone's afraid of me. Everybody wants to use and manipulate me in some way. I'm having to deal with this on top of the fact that I have to deal with a monster that will come out if I lose control. And everyone in the movie is like walking on eggshells around him, with the exception of Tony Stark. The dick. Yeah. Trying to get, the dick who's just trying, trying to, to get him out, him out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Tony. The the first Avengers film does that story great. You know, the Hulk himself, when he comes out, is just kind of a destructive force. And that that's fun for the first Avengers film. I, I think that's fine because like there's a lot of fun, destructive moments with the Hulk in that film. I don't need them to get super introspective on top of, like, all the other characters that we're doing this with. Them focusing on Banner's character arc and, like, everything else going on, I think was great for that movie. Beyond that, it's a slow downward spiral. Yeah, um, I can't disagree. What I think the first Avengers film did so well is that it's juggling all these characters, obviously, and it has a mostly kind of light and bouncy tone, mm-hmm. but... And like the whole first half, you're like, you know, you're waiting like, oh, when's he going to Hulk out? When is he going to Hulk out? When he finally does, it's not like a, yeah, kind of moment. It's scary. Yeah. Like Black Widow's trapped down there in the helicarrier as he's losing control. And if she doesn't get the hell out of the way, she's going to die. Yeah. That I think was a very smart move on Josh Whedon's part to not, you know, make the first appearance of the Hulk and an oorah, go get him moment. He saves that for the finale. Right. So there's our Hulk in Avengers review. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do some nerd ethics. Nerd ethics. Let's do it. I've got a really... uh, We're either going to go nowhere with this or we're going to talk about it for another damn hour. I want to talk about the ethics surrounding the idea of two souls in one body. Oh, Jesus. Assuming this is something that was feasibly possible, if this could happen, if there are two souls trapped within one body, what do these two entities owe each other, if anything, in regards to bodily autonomy? Autonomy. Oh, God. Yeah, that's... Ooh, dude. (laughs) Okay, I think we we need some framework here. Let's make it easy on ourselves and assume that this is a fantastical world. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the Marvel Universe, yeah, where science and magic are both can converge to possibly help these people 
in said situation. Hell, we can even narrow the focus down to Bruce Banner and the Hulk. What is the ethical way for them to deal with the fact that they share a body? Like, what should they do? This goes back to what I was saying about the metaphor of mental health. Instead of Thunderbolt Ross or even his or even his friends, the Avengers and other Marvel heroes, really taking the time to talk to the Hulk and talk to Bruce about how to help. They hunt him. They try to kill him. They shoot him off in the fucking space. Yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> we're going to talk about Planet Hulk and World War Hulk sometime down the line, because that's another favorite. It's it's like you could read it as just like. I hate to sound big brained, but like it's it's so like the subtext is there. It's right there. Like mm-hmm. it, you just see it as one big metaphor about how people fail those, you know, with with mental illness and neurodivergence. Yeah. You know, like you have all of these geniuses and all of these people who are empathetic to a point, but only until it becomes, you know, inconvenient or too scary or too hard. He, he is a like, problem to be dealt with rather than a person who needs help. And because he can be dangerous, they don't take the time to really try to help as much as just solve. The ethics are, the framework that I laid out, fucking try and think of a way to help these people, you know? Help Bruce and the Hulk. Help them find, through whatever means necessary through your science and and, and your magic, make them comfortable with each other and themselves. Give them as much peace that they can conceivably have. And that, that's where Professor um, Hulk comes from. Um, the Professor Hulk was a merging of the identities that was cre- uh, Doc Samson, who's another Hulk character that a lot of people probably don't know about. He helped Good old Doc Samson. Yeah, he helped the Hulk identities, Banner, Grey Hulk, and Green Hulk to yeah, come to terms, come for to terms with each other for a short time and merge into this idealized version of themselves. Which is a pretty forward-thinking thing to do in, like, an early 90s comic, you know? Mm-hmm. It's saying that, you know, discussion and thought and, 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 and mental health, mental health, you know, awareness is, is going to help people that have these kinds of problems. So it, it, it's cool that a, con- a, a Hulk comic in the 90s was, was thinking about that kind of thing. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, that's my answer. I don't think... I don't think that's too hard of an ethic. <laughs> I don't know if that necessarily hit on what I was going for. For like these, what are the t- what are the two entities owe each uh, oh, other? Oh, what do they owe each other? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, and I hate, and I don't mean, and I, what I just said, I don't mean all that to sound like, oh, it's easy to fix mental health issues. No, that's no, not what I'm saying. Everything that's you not said what I'm was saying at all. Everything you I don't said want was any, great. I think it was just yeah. on a different track than where I was going, which yeah. is fine. I think you brought up a I great just, point. I was just saying I don't want anybody who listens to this to think that I'm like saying like oh if you just do this and this then all your mental health problems go away. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm and I don't think that was what it was. You came off as you've made it very clear that the whole point is that it is going to be difficult to deal with these things, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't. You know, the way characters deal with it in world is that like oh no, it's too difficult to deal with the Hulk. Let's shoot him into space, and that's wrong. Uh, yeah. Um. As far as what they owe each other. Oh God. They owe each other what they, I just base mutual, mutual respect, I guess, for their individual desires of what they want out of their life, basically, mm-hmm. you know, like up, up to a point, as long as like one of their, what one desires doesn't infringe upon the autonomy and freedom of the other. 
what they want should be respected. That's the thing is that by their very nature, I think it's impossible for them not to infringe on each other's autonomy. We're talking because they're trapped. Even in like the most basic sense, like when the Hulk has taken over the body, like Banner is trapped within his own body. Yeah. Weeks and months sometimes. Yeah. Like it is, it is a back and forth between these Mm -hmm. two where it's not just like, you know, them, their actions in particular. It's the fact that, like, literally they're trapped within each other. Uh, well, th- that's what, you know, that's what people helping them will have to solve. How to get them to a point physically, metaphysically, mentally, where they're not, you know, taking over each other's lives mm-hmm. like that and, like, overriding their existence and right to be a, a free will upon the earth. I think it's I think it's also a great testament to why like this dynamic has lasted for as long as it has and it remains fresh is that like you always understand the resentment between these two like this isn't a problem that can ever really go away they're always like by their very existence they're going to be in conflict because you have two people fighting for control of the same life mhm Yep. You can kind of make the, like, I could see people making the argument of, like, Hulk was created through unnatural circumstances. How much right to life does he have, you right. know? Banner, as opposed to Bruce. Mm-hmm. Bran- Banner might see him as a parasite on his life, and he does in a lot of times. But you, d- you don't have the Hulk without Bruce. Mm-hmm. Without what happened to Bruce, without his experiences and his past abuse and his trauma and everything that he's experienced. Yeah. How much can you quantify the Hulk as his own separate being and entity when so much of what he is is because of what happened to Bruce and who Bruce is? You know? The Hulk wasn't born in the Gamma Blast either. No, yeah. The Hulk was awoke what was in there in the first place. It, It gave form to something that was already inside of Bruce. Bruce Banner, literally in the comics, they talk about this. Bruce Banner has a dissociative disorder where he has multiple identities within him. The Hulk was not born from the Gamma Blast. The Gamma Blast just gave the Hulk a way out of the body. Out of Bruce. To say that either one of them has their right to claim the body is to say that, like, one of them is more ban- One of them is more- banner than the other and none of them are all of the versions of the hulk are pieces of banner that have manifested in different ways oh man i figured this one would get heavy i didn't expect it to get so heavy yeah (laughs) this is what i love so much about the hulk is that like there's tons of great themes and messages to look in superhero stories in general but i feel like a lot of them come down to sort of similar tropes of like sort of the Spider-Man thing of, like, great power, great responsibility. A lot of superhero stories kind of come down to that. With the Hulk, it's not a matter of great power, great responsibility. It's a matter of what does it mean to exist in a world that hates you and in a body you don't have control over? Yeah, and, like, that's not even, uh, that's not even something that, like, more modern, nuanced takes on the character have explored. Like, it's been there since the beginning. Yeah. even yeah, even though those older comics are you know big and colorful, and he's fighting monsters and stuff all the time, like that basic like struggle has has been there from the very first issue mm-hmm. and has continued. Like 
he's I really yeah, I mean, of course he has been a superhero like we've established, but I really can't classify the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk title as a superhero book. Because it's just that's not the focus of the story. For most of its run, no, I would I wouldn't say it is either. He like, certainly filled that role at times, but it's not a story of a hero who saves the day and fights against bad guys to maintain a peaceful status quo. That's not the theme or the aesthetic of the world of the Hulk. I mean, the the Bill Mantlo run that I mentioned before that I'm reading, like mm-hmm. it starts off. With him just trying to honor the dying wish of his beloved Jarella. You remember Jarella? Yeah. He just, he's carrying her dead body, like over like the span of like four issues, just trying to get it to her, to her final resting place on her home world. And like, it's so fucking sad. Cause yeah. he's just like, Hulk made promise that he would bury Jarella at her home and return her to her people. That's what I'm going to do. And it's just this, struggle for him just to do that, you know, just, just to be a decent person and honor somebody that he loved, who was again, mm-hmm. taken away from him. I, like, I will say that, unfortunately, uh, a recurring trope with the Hulk, and this is why I think they need to focus exclusively on Betty Ross as his only love interest is because they can continue to like focus on the dynamics between them. But unfortunately, the Hulk, like many other superheroes, suffers from the trope of fridging female love interests. He's had multiple yeah. throughout his run, and they're killed for dramatic effect. Jarella being one of them. Kyra, the old strong from Planet Hulk, is such a fun, cool, badass character, and she gets fridged just to spark World War Hulk, which sucks, even though that is a great storyline. Yeah, Bridging is a complicated issue. I don't know if I want to get into it right now. It is, and we'll talk about it at some point, I'm sure, maybe when we actually get into Planet Hulk, but, like, I don't think that every instance of a love interest dying is an instance of fridging. But, like, there's... Yeah, that's basically my general take, too. Yeah, but I do think it is also a, a problem, specifically because it seems to target female love interests and killing off interesting female characters in order to spurn the character arc of a male character. Like, it is an issue. I don't think every time it's brought up, it's an issue. Yeah. We'll get to that at some point. Like I said, maybe with our Planet Hulk review, which we will do, because we're going to talk a lot, a lot more Hulk down the line. I'm glad this has yep. opened shit up for us. He's a great character. And it, it took me so long to really see how great of a character he is. <laughs> I'm glad you've come around. I love him <laughs> so much. He's my favorite comic character. Let's get into review review. This We'll start with Future Imperfect. Future Imperfect on Goodreads had 4.01 out of 5 stars. First reviews from Dan Schwent. Dan says, The art is fantastic. Page after page is crammed with detail from the two-page crowd shot near the beginning, complete with Hidden Waldo. To the Maestro's Trophy Room. I had way too much fun spotting all the artifacts of dead heroes. Three out of five stars. Okay. Um, not a very substantive review, but... Um, no, but... I yeah, th- it, the art's great. <laughs> art's great, and I, like I said, I love how um, George Perez fills every panel with so much detail. It's great. I, I agree with Dan here. Donovan. Donovan says, The dichotomy between the Hulk and his crazy future self, the Maestro, is deeply literary. There's always Bruce versus Hulk, man versus monster, control versus rage, but throw in the maestro and it adds a whole different level of psychological exploration. Four out of five stars. I think we kind of uh, covered that too. Yep, we we pretty much covered that. Uh, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, man versus man, man versus self. 
<laughs> this one's from Matthew. Matthew says, a great read. I just wish it wasn't so inappropriate. The author could have insinuated how inappropriate Maestro was. Four out of five stars. Well, I guess it's a matter of taste. Yeah. You know, it's it goes to some dark places. I I understand this isn't gonna be everybody's cup of tea. In recent years there's been a lot of like focus on how sexual abuse is like treated in fiction. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument that, you know, for a mainstream comic book character, going that far is like inappropriate or wrongheaded yeah. or tone deaf. I mean, and you're allowed to feel that way, of course. Like, I mean, cause it's, it's like, it's like the touchiest subject, you know, to depict in fiction mm-hmm. is, is, is sexual abuse and sexual assault. But I don't, I, I don't want to subscribe to like, Oh, you, you can't tell something that like serious and real world and dark in this kind of story because I think that kind of hamstrings like the creativity and who, who's, to, who's to say that like just because like, you know, these are stories about like colorful characters and outlandish characters that like, you know, they have to be relegated to just that, that, you know, they can't touch upon real issues. Like if, the author wants to go there, you know. Right. I'm kind of, kind of tripping over myself. I want no. to be more articulate with this point than I. I think. I think. I, it, I think that's a great point. I think it's always a matter of presentation and how respectful you are about the topic. I think in this story in particular, it is brought up to show how monstrous these acts are. Like exactly. this is what the villain does to show how much of a monster he is. It's not being done in a way that sort of like is meant for raw, oh, women are, like, objects to be... It's to show, like, how far this character has fallen in his distorted future self. It's it's not meant to be, like, degrading to women. It's meant to show that this character degrading women is an act of malice and grotesque hedonism. Yeah, and I would would think Peter David maybe went that far to, you know, emphasize the monster, what I was saying earlier of how people saw the Hulk, mm-hmm. you know, for so long, like, I'm, I, I'm not putting, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like, it, it reads to me like he's like, okay, he's seen as this monster by the world, by so many people. He doesn't want to become that. He's not that. He, he knows he's not that. But what if he was like, he's the monster turned into the ultimate monster, you know, he's, yeah. Like in 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 order in order for like the psychological push and pull between them in this story to like have maximum impact, like Maestro has to be everything that could possibly be evil about the Hulk. Yeah, you know, yeah. This idea of power corrupting, not just in the sense of his physical power over everyone else, but in the form of social power that he now has over everyone else as well. Yeah. What what if you know the mind and the body of Banner and Hulk? <laughs> became corrupted and decided that they want power. What happens when you remove all the sympathetic elements from this story? That's what the maestro is. So, uh, yeah. Um, to reiterate, it's definitely going to push some buttons for the, for people who just, you know, don't want that kind of content. Yeah. In, in their, in their comics. Totally understandable. But from what I remember, I think it's mostly done tastefully. Yeah. Uh, next review is from S.A. S.A. says, 
I don't really believe that the Hulk would aim for and be happy with being a ruler. That's just too much social involvement, and the Hulk is basically a really irritable introvert, so he would hate being in charge. Three out of five stars. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of an interesting point. I, I can't automatically dismiss that, because the story, I'm, I'm assuming the new Maestro comic gets into why and the how, but Future Imperfect, from what I remember, doesn't explain why and how. No. He becomes the maestro. Well, here's there's t- there's two things. One, yes, there is a new maestro comic, and we'll get about it in recommendations that explores how the maestro came to be in the first place. But two, this is also specifically the Professor Hulk persona. This is during this period of time. Maestro is the Professor Hulk persona pushed to its absolute most monstrous limits. Okay, like, yeah, that, that's a good caveat to yeah, reiterate. During this, it's not just the Hulk turned into this. It's no. this Hulk turned into this. Yeah, because the Professor Hulk was a hero. He worked on a superhero team called the Pantheon, who I think were descended from Greek gods. Like He was a hero that went around saving the world and everything, and had a lot more respect within the superhero community while he had this Professor Hulk identity with Banner more in control. Like This was a very social Hulk. This was a Hulk that could act with others without being afraid of being seen as a monster. And the whole point of the maestro here is showing how that like being accepted within society could corrupt him to where it's like now instead of it being like, I just want to be left alone, it's like, I'm going to take over everything because I deserve it. Yeah, whereas the end is like your baseline Savage Hulk, mm-hmm. you know, brought to his, you know, tragic endpoint. Maestro is Professor Hulk brought to his tragic endpoint. And that's that's such a great element of this character, too, is that, like, there's so many different versions of this character, and yet they all speak to differing, sort of like a prism. There's multiple faces to it, but it's all a similar story of, like, man versus monster. And you can approach it from so many different angles, depending on which Hulk you want to, like, focus on. And that's something that Immortal Hulk does great. Yeah, I was, it, I was just going to say, like, we're, in, we're now we're in the variation of the Hulk who is protective of Bruce. Mm-hmm. The who, devil who, Hulk. Who loves Bruce. Yeah, we'll talk about Immortal Hulk at some point. I, it's about to end. It's going to end tomorrow as <laughs> the last issue drops. And we end will, of an era. It's. I'm going to throw this out here. I've been reading Hulk for years, literally over a decade now. Immortal Hulk may be the best consistent mainstream run of the Hulk in his entire history. Yeah, there's a lot of people share that sentiment. Out you, I can't, out, I can't, I mean, from what I've read, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I haven't read everything, of course, but yeah, it's fantastic. Al it's Ewing phenomenal. has a perfect understanding of what makes this character work as a character, and he pushes the whole, like, man and monster theme to its absolute most grotesque limits. It's, it's fantastic. We'll get, we'll talk about Immortal Hulk later. Let's finish up review review now. Let's move on to the end. The end got 3.99 out of five stars on Goodreads. A little lower than, uh, Future Imperfect, actually. I think, I think where it's more of a, uh, character piece with a lot less happening, it's maybe a little less interesting to general audiences. Yeah, probably. Um, First off is Gavin. Gavin says, The combo of the two halves, Banner and Hulk, 
constantly at odds with each other's fascinating stuff right out of psychology textbooks. The self could not only be any more thoroughly examined than here. Throw in the parallels with the Prometheus and you've got a book that transcends and deserves to be mentioned amongst the best ever. Five out of five stars. I mean, yeah, we pretty much hit on all that, too. Yeah. Here's here's somebody who didn't like it. Uh, Jamil Randery says... I think I'm giving this book only two stars because I've already read The End Demise of the Hulk in Old Man Logan, which is without a doubt a far better end than this book. It was probably one of the most depressing endings for a superhero or an Avenger or a human being. It's also an ambiguous ending, which means that the torture can still continue. Two out of five stars. I don't know if the his rambling about it being depressing was supposed to be a criticism. It's, yeah. but here. Um. Let's talk about Old Man Logan Hulk real quick. I like Old Man Logan. I think it's a great story. It's a great non-canon story for Wolverine in the future. It does a lot of exploration of like what would happen if all the supervillains teamed up and took out all the heroes. And in that story, the Hulk basically takes over a section of America and rules over it as this demented tyrant, uh, sort of like the Maestro. But... I don't understand how they can see the ending of the Hulk in Old Man Logan and think that that's a better ending than this story. Because in Old Man Logan, first off, the Hulk's barely in it. He like he shows up in the very last chapter because Logan goes out to like face him down after like he killed his family and everything. And the story ends with Wolverine getting eaten by the Hulk and then Wolverine cuts his way out of the Hulk, killing him. Okay. That's right. Cause it's been a hot minute since I've read that too. So yeah. I wasn't correct. And sure of the details. There's a lot of problems with this. First off, it makes the Hulk and banner obviously villainous, which I don't have a problem with them taking the villain role for this story. But to say that that's like their definitive ending, that they should die like this villainous inbreeding monster. Because in that story, he also like rapes Jennifer yeah. Walters and has a bunch of incestuous <laughs> children with her. Like, yeah, but, yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he's a real skis bag in Old Man Logan. He's a real, it's not very flattering to the Hulk. Um, and it's obvious that that version was inspired by Maestro from Future and Perfect. Yeah, he, like, he's meant to be monstrous in this version. He, he was riffing off of that yeah. version. So, but, but to say that this is the defending ending of the Hulk, first off, this is, this is me gonna flex a little nerd muscle. The Hulk getting cut open would not kill him. <laughs> like, I, I understand that from yeah, a narrative, point, yeah. I understand from a narrative standpoint, comics, you know, mess with feats and the abilities of these characters all the time. They sometimes they're more powerful, sometimes they're less powerful. Uh, Hulk's been fucking disintegrated and like swimming through lava and like in the middle of interplanetary explosions and shit and walked it off. Getting cut open by Wolverine is never going to kill the Hulk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Joe Fixit fought the Hulk. Yeah. You know, back in the day. Yeah, and, Joe uh, Fixit fought fine. Wolverine, yeah. I mean, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Joe Fixit fought the Hulk. He did, Wolverine. technically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did. Technically, Joe Fixit fought Savage Hulk in their mindscape at points, but like, but like, to say that the old man Logan death of Hulk is more fitting than the end Hulk, a, a whole character 
piece that like takes the time to explore this dynamic between Banner and Hulk, it just shows like a complete misunderstanding of who this character is. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I haven't read Old Man Logan, God, maybe a decade, but it's obvious that his role in the story is just meant to be, you know, secondary in, in two dimensional. Yeah. He's antagonistic. Because it's a Logan story. Like that's the focus. Like it's a non-canon Logan story. So it's fine that the Hulk is, I don't know if you want to say out of character, but it's fine that for the lack of a better term, that he's out of character in that way because it serves a story and the story's on canon anyway. So, right. But yeah, but yeah, I agree. Like as a definitive end, like that it's, it's far too lackluster and two dimensional. Yeah. Compared to the end. And again, I like old man Logan. I think it's a great story. It's a lot of fun and uh, dark in places as well. But the Hulk's role in it has always chafed me a little wrong anyway. So, yeah. Matthias says, It still had some stale ideas, such as man's war being the end of the planet. I always find it funny that whenever the end of the world scenario is brought up in comics, the superheroes always have their hands clean of it. Like it's the war of the normies. I highly doubt every single superhero sees themselves as a superhero first and a countryman second. In fact, I'm always hard-pressed to believe a world full of super beings wouldn't inevitably be brought down by super beings. Four out of five stars. I hate to sound like a dick, but that take sounds really kind of like, <laughs> look at me and my my big brain here. It also kind of misses um, the point. This isn't about the end of the world. This is about the end of the Hulk. Yeah, like, to tell that story, like, you need the end of the word world backdrop. Like, that's the point. Yeah. Like. That's that's kind of the, the whole subtext of the thing. Mm-hmm. Duh. <laughs> I also think that Hulk in particular gets a little more claimed this idea of like nuclear holocaust than perhaps other characters, even though we may have seen that story done to death and like we all know about it. Hulk yeah, it was, was his inception. Like it's it was his inception. It's intrinsic to the character. It came out in during the Cold War. Hulk was in the 60s. He came out during the Cold War. He was a warning against this from the beginning. This character. Not just him. Like all those Marvel characters are born from that mindset of yeah. like the Cold War in the early 60s. Like, you know, meddling with science and the dangers of, of science and man and the, the atomic they're, age. They're all like that. Yeah. Everyone, all of them. Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Swear, all of them. Yeah. So this idea of like nuclear holocaust in a Hulk story, I feel like is not like maybe we are tired of that story. But for this character in particular, it's super fitting. Like this was where he was born. Yeah. And like how like how else would aliens that's kind of toothless. Right. And come on, let's let's be real. Like the world is going to end because of us. I mean, yeah, that's the whole point (laughs) is our hubris is going to destroy us. Ugh. And why would you want the the? Okay, I don't want to misquote him. Did he say that like how come like the heroes are always free of responsibility? Why would why would you want the superheroes, the people that are supposed to represent humanity being better and striving for better, being responsible for nuclear annihilation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? This no. Yeah, you're looking for one of those edgy superhero stories where they do horrible, horrible shit in the name of, like, this misguided... Those stories are fine. I think there are plenty of stories that go the edgy route. Invincible's one of them. Uh, The Boys is another one of them that goes the whole, like, 
misguided heroes and everything. Yeah, there's plenty of them. There's plenty um, of injustice. Um, right. There's tons of those stories, and a lot of them are very entertaining, and they have a lot of good themes to explore. But a lot of superhero stories are also about giving people hope. <laughs> like, that's what yes. people forget nowadays, is that, like, superhero stories were initially meant to inspire hope. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the entire point. We of talked the about that. Superhero. We talked about that in our Superman stuff, and like, it's so sad that people don't get that anymore. I, I've noticed this this kind of like narrative trend. Like, as much as I love the genre and the films and the comics, like, there's a lot of stories that are more about like the heroes creating their own problems and then having to solve them, which like makes it more of like an insular kind of narrative. And not so much a heroic narrative. Yeah. Where it's just like, and like, that's not me saying that all those kinds of stories are bad. Like, plenty of them are great. But it's just like, it gets to a point where you, when, when you notice it and you're like, you almost kind of forget that they're superheroes. You're just kind of watching superpowered people in colored costumes, like having issues. And like, it kind of loses the, you know, the fact that it's supposed to be them being superheroes. Right. You know? I'll, I'll this is a bit of a tangent, but that's one of the reasons I really like the Squirrel Girl comics is that it feels like a sort of return to form for superheroics where it's about a character who inspires hope and saves the day instead of getting caught up in a bunch of like melodrama bullshit. Like there are elements of like personal character arcs and drama and whatnot. But the main thing that she does is fight bad guys. She eats nuts and kicks butts, you know, <laughs> The Squirrel Girl comics, I feel like, are a great example of, like, putting some modern takes into the superhero formula where you have a character who is just out to make the world a better place, doing her best and fighting bad guys who don't see the world the same way she does. I should finally crack that nut and uh, start reading those comics. (laughs) They're good. I like them. There's a lot of creative ways that she saves the day, too. It's not always just I punch the bad guy until they stop. It's a lot of it is like helping misguided people who have like a lot of social issues and face a lot of social stigma, find a place for themselves in society. It's a very wholesome comic. It's good to hear. I've, I've heard a lot of hot takes that, you know, people who hate squirrel girl because like they try to push it so hard and like, it's just trying to be like another Deadpool and like they make your no OP and, it's, and I'm like, way. I barely, I, I've barely, I've barely even read any of those comics, and like, it's obviously a concept that you're not supposed to take 100% seriously. Comic fans and their like obsession with like power levels and lore and the minutia of continuity drive me up a fucking wall. Who oh, cares? it's so Who cares? it's so These funny that gonna, it's so funny. <laughs> These you things have been in publication for since the 30s. <laughs> like, just. Um. So funny you mentioned that. Our last review that we're going to talk about, Timothy Banks. If you're a Hulk fan, this is a must-read. also explains a ton about Hulk and his abilities above the other heroes. This story solves the age-old question of who's the greatest Avenger. Five out of five stars. You missed the point. (laughs) This is not about a story proving Hulk stronger than any other hero. Yeah, he he sounds like they just kind of took the, like, Hulk is the strongest there is at face value and didn't, like... He he got to the second to last, er, the third to last line. He got to Hulk is strongest when there is, and he stopped before he read Hulk is only when there is, Hulk feels cold. 
Yeah, Hulk is the strongest one there is. That's what this whole story was about. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the character growth. It's like, ugh. Anyway, that wraps up review review. I've got a bunch of recommendations. Do you have any before I take over? I didn't think of Rex because I'm I'm terrible at this podcast apparently. <laughs> but um, I I guess like if you're interested in some some good Hulk history from the past, um, read the Bill Mantlo run that starts mm-hmm. in the 80s. I can't remember the specific title. It's in the 200s. I know that. I think like 230-something, maybe 240s. Yeah, go with the Bill Mantlo run for some really good classic Hulk stories. Yeah. And some of his, like, the early ones, I think, are a lot of campy fun. Like the, yeah, like the, the one Sex from Issues the by Lee and Kirby. Yeah. Starting with the comics... Like I said, I read a lot of the Peter David stuff. Not all of it, because he ran for 12 fucking years. The Hulk Visionaries, like, there's collections of Hulk Visionaries, Peter David. I recommend at least volumes one and two. It's the reintroduction of the Grey Hulk right before he has his Joe Fixit personality. And it's this great sort of, like, character introspection of, like, who the Grey Hulk is. Um, before he like sort of finds his fl- place as Joe Fixit. It also has a lot of fun stuff with the leader as the main antagonist. Banner trying to work out his relationship with Betty. He also has like a duo of Rick Jones and one of the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. who are like trying to keep him on the run from the government. It's a really fun run. So I definitely recommend Hulk Visionaries, Peter David, those collections. Planet Hulk and World War Hulk, both written by Greg Pak. These are probably some of the best Hulk stories written in the past, basically since the 2000s. Um, Probably the most popular. At least the most popular, yes. Um, It's a story of the Hulk being sent to another world after a group of heroes known as the Illuminati, uh, made up of Iron Man, Namor the Submariner, uh, Black Panther, Reed Richards... Like, basically all the smart superheroes or the, like, leaders of, like, nations and stuff being like, we can't have this threat to the world be around anymore. They shoot the Hulk off into space uh, to so he's no longer a problem. He lands on an alien world and finally kind of finds a place for himself. This is a very savage, brutal world that kind of accepts and even celebrates his, like violent outbursts and his rage. He becomes this sort of heroic figure on this world. It's a great story. It's a great new personality for the Hulk. Like, they straight up make a new Hulk persona here called the Green Scar, a.k.a. the World Breaker, who is one of the most powerful versions of the Hulk and a fucking fun one to follow. And that story eventually leads into World War Hulk, where he comes back to Earth with his warriors who have sworn allegiance to him and just fucking goes to town on Earth's heroes. Like, he finds all of the Illuminati members that, like, send him off into space. He beats the shit out of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four. Like, he's just on a rampage getting his vengeance, and it's a very, very fun, cathartic sort of thing, because... I'm gonna say cathartic. (laughs) Because, like, you understand why he's doing what he's doing. Like, these are superheroes he's fighting, and usually you're like, oh, you want the heroes to win. But, like, they ruined his life. His thirst for vengeance is very justifiable here. 
With friends like these, right? Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of great spin-off um stuff from the World War Hulk saga. Like there were ton it was like a major event where tons of things did it. One of the ones that I like the best is Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider goes in to try and stop the Hulk's rampage, and at this point he was having trouble it was like the Ghost Rider personality and the human personality were in conflict with each other where the human was trying to like control the ghost rider, but the ghost rider persona was like, no, you're not doing this right. And they had to do, do you remember if it was Johnny blaze or Danny catch or it, I think it was still Johnny blaze at that point. I can't remember for sure, but um, he fights with the Hulk and the human persona just isn't strong enough to beat Hulk. But when the true ghost rider comes out, like the actual spirit of vengeance ghost rider comes out and is like facing down the Hulk he just leaves because he thinks the Hulk's in the rot for getting his vengeance. <laughs> and it's it's just the perfect ending. Like, he just stares down the Hulk and he just turns and walks away. And it's so fucking metal. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Because um, people, uh, and, I, and I don't mean this to sound um, backhanded, mm-hmm. but um, more casual Marvel fans probably don't know that Ghost Rider is one of the more powerful characters in the Marvel. Oh, universe. he's top tier. Like, he's literally an agent of hell. He's, like, on par almost with Doctor Strange in terms of raw magical power. He's a super powerful character. And he's a fucking guy with a flaming skeleton. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He's just fucking cool. (laughs) Yeah. As much as I love the Hulk and the younger version of me would have been like, Hulk is strongest. There he is. Hulk is the best. Here he's nobody can beat the Hulk. Like there's a lot of characters out there in the Marvel universe stronger than the Hulk and Ghost Rider is probably one of them, depending on who's riding him. Yeah. Um, well, there you go, Al Ewing, um, after Immortal Hulk, write a Hulk versus Ghost Rider miniseries. <laughs> uh, answer the question. Or Hulk <laughs> becomes Ghost Rider miniseries. Oh, shit! Hulk Rider. <laughs> I Ghost mean, Hulk. Frank, Frank Castle's already become the Ghost Rider, That's so true. why not Hulk? Yeah, uh, we talked about Immortal Hulk, we'll... We'll eventually get to that one. We're going to get to Planet Hulk and World War Hulk 2 eventually. We're going to get to a lot of Hulk stuff down the line eventually. It's just going to take some time. I mentioned earlier there's a Maestro comic that started releasing, also written by Peter David, uh, explaining how the Maestro came to be. Uh, There was a five-issue miniseries released in 2020 and another one released this year. And there's another miniseries coming out, I think, next year. Uh, The original was just called Maestro. The second was called Maestro War and Pax. And the third, I think, is Maestro War of something. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. And lastly, if you're looking for a fun way to, you know, be the Hulk, I recommend Hulk Ultimate Destruction, the video game. Story-wise, it's not the most, you know, deep or introspective story of the Hulk. It's him versus the Abomination. But it's a lot of fun to just smash shit and, you know, run through buildings and fight the military and everything in that game. I think it's a really fun one. So if you're a big fan of the Hulk, maybe pick that up. And if you really, really want to be the Hulk, get yourself a pair of Hulk hands <laughs> and go around beating the shit out of anybody who has ever wronged you. And <laughs> just start punching your friends like I did when I was six. Because oh. the Hulk hands are like the greatest toy that has ever been invented. They really were. The original Hulk hands, now they're like kind of half open. Yeah, they screwed them up. Because people punched each other with them. Yeah, they used to be big, meaty, solid styro- like hard styrofoam fists, and now they're just kind of 
eh, like weak gripping hands. They're like open gloves, and it was because kids would beat the shit out of each other with them. That's the point. They're all hands. Exactly. That's what they they were for. (laughs) I have forgotten to do ratings on so many of these reviews, which is fine. Like the numbers don't mean anything, but I don't have like a fancy rating for these two. Future Imperfect, I would give, if I'm giving just like a regular ass review, I'd probably give it like an 8 out of 10. Hulk the end, I'd give a fucking 10 out of 10. Perfect. Perfect story. Okay, cool. Yeah. I will give a million, Imperfect. million out of a million cockroaches is what That's I give. That's what I was going to say. That's going to say, like, <laughs> I will give the end 10, 10 million f- flesh-eating cockroaches out of, like... <laughs> An eternity of the Hulk feeling cold. <laughs> uh, Tyler, take us yeah. out. Um, the Hulk is a sad boy, but the Hulk hands are a great toy. So read the Hulk because he's good. The end. <laughs> Excellent. Top quality content.